0: Well, the Bible teaches that every Christian is saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. According to Romans eight, twenty-nine and thirty, God foreknew each and every one of his people. He predestined them to adoption and salvation, according to Ephesians one five. He called them to himself, John six forty four. He justifies us by faith, Galatians two sixteen. And even though we experience The reality of heaven as a future reality, Romans 8.30 declares that God has already glorified us in His Son, seating us with Christ in the heavenly places, according to Ephesians 2.6. This is what is known as monergistic salvation, or in other words, that God is the one who saves totally and completely by His grace and kindness. And yet, Every Christian is called and redeemed by the Lord and commanded to follow Him in full obedience. There is an element of human responsibility that we bear, and if we don't, we give evidence that we don't belong to Him at all. In John 10.27, Jesus says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. However, a quick glance down through the halls of history reveals that many have come and claimed the name of Christian and yet have absolutely no desire to follow Jesus at all. And why is that? Well, there are surely many reasons, but I believe that one of the main reasons is that a person does not faithfully follow Jesus because it comes at a high cost that they just don't want to pay. They love their life as it is, and they don't want to lose what they have. However, as often with the Lord, things are not what they seem. So if you would please turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to finish up the chapter today, Matthew 16. And the end of chapter 16 really brings us to the conclusion of a very dense, very power-packed chapter with lots of doctrine and lots of, frankly, a lots of emotion. It begins with the Pharisees and Sadducees teaming up against Jesus to try to trap him in his own words. From there, the disciples retreat across the sea to Caesarea Philippi, which occasions this earth-shattering discussion as to the identity of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And on the heels of that is the announcement of a creation of a new entity which we know to be the church, which Christ himself has promised to build. And he says the gates... Of Hades will not overpower it at this point in that context of the narrative Everything is exciting. Everything is promising. Everything is positive They would have been on cloud nine at that point in the conversation That is until Jesus tells the disciples that none of this is going to occur until he travels to Jerusalem Suffers at the hands of the Jewish leaders is murdered on a cross and then resurrected on the third day Well, this is just too much for Peter we read in verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. To which we read one of the harshest rebukes in the New Testament, verse 23, and he, referring to Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are, not steady, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And it's on the heels of that very sharp rebuke, that the the Lord turns His attention back to to the disciples and He dispenses the following. Matthew 16, starting in verse 24. Then Jesus said to the disciples, or His disciples, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry... He's been calling people to follow Him. In fact, all of the disciples were called in the same way. Matthew 4.19, Jesus tells Peter and Andrew when they were casting their nets into the sea, He says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Matthew, the tax collector, was told the same thing, follow me. He dropped everything at that moment and he started following Jesus. In fact, He told the crowds in John 8.12, I am the light of the world He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so what does it mean then to follow Jesus? Or as our text says, to come after Him. Because that's what it means to follow someone literally, right? Is to come after them, to follow them, to walk behind them. It means that you observe what the Lord does, you purpose to imitate Him, and then you order your life according to His commands, And Jesus had already taught this back in Matthew chapter 10, and we looked at that as a church quite a while ago. But he tells the disciples this, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. And then he says this, the disciple is to become like his teacher. The disciple is to become like his teacher. And so more than this, he doesn't just demand obedience, he even demands love. Matthew 10, 37, he who loves Father or mother, more than me, is not worthy of me. Now it's not just obedience, it's actually love. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the Shema, that's Deuteronomy 6.4, is it not? We are to love Him. Christ is to be the most prized and loved person in our life. He is to be Lord, Master, Teacher, God to us. We're talking about complete and total devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, on paper, if I were to write you all a letter and say, respond back and check yes or check no, you'd all say yes and amen. Absolutely, that's what we want. I love the Lord, I want to follow Him, I obey Him, everything. But when you you put it to the test, if you're really pressed for it, The question persists, do you really follow Jesus? What would you say if you had to answer honestly? Do you follow the Lord Jesus Christ? And why is this even an issue? Why even ask this question? Well, because the challenge is is that we want to be our own master. We want to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. That's the theme song for the culture today, is it not? But that leaves absolutely no room for the lordship of Christ. And so Jesus lays out three simple conditions for coming after Him. The first condition He says here in the text is that to follow Him, to come after Him, you must deny yourself. Deny yourself. The Greek word that's used here quite literally can mean separate yourself from or even to disown. To disown. Now, we've already seen that Peter is the antithesis of this back in verse 23. The problem with Peter at that point was that he was seeking his own will, preferring himself. And Jesus tells him that. You're not setting your mind on God's will. You're doing what you want to do, what's best for you. Jesus, on the other hand, is the epitome of self-denial. We read about this in Philippians 2. Having this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ, all says, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of the bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. Listen to this. He humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the example that is set out before us of our Lord who denies Himself in such a way that He humbles Himself down to the ground and dies the death of a sinner. You think about Romans 14.7, that we are not to live for ourselves. Ever think about that concept? You are not to live for yourself. Rather, we are to live unto the Lord. Romans 14.7, again, self-denial says, no, to what I want, and yes, to what the Lord commands. And if we are to come after Christ, we must deny ourselves. The second thing he says is to take up our cross. Now, historically, I think we read this verse a lot as Christians and say, well, yes, if anyone comes out to deny himself, to take up his cross. We repeat that and just spit it out very quickly without pondering what this means. Historically, the cross is an instrument of death. It's a place where people go to die. It's popularized by the Romans. It wasn't invented by them, but they just saw that and said, that's a great idea. Let's kill people that way. Take the cross, and tens of thousands of people under the Roman occupation were put to death on crosses. It's an agonizing, brutal, inhumane way to die. But here's the thing. You don't carry a cross with the expectation that your life is going to improve. You carry a cross because you know that you're going to end up on the cross, and you're going to die, and you're going to die in a way that is excruciating, of the cross. That's what that word means. And so to take up your cross means that you're submitting yourself to your own death. This goes far beyond self-denial. This goes to the death of self, and that's what Christianity is. It is. It is the death of who you were in your former life of sin and depravity and then a rebirth into a new life in Christ. That's what Christianity is. In fact, Romans 8, 12, and 13 says that if you continue to live according to your old sinful nature as a believer, he says you will die eternally. But if you put that sinful flesh to death by the power of the Spirit, Paul says you'll live And so the vestiges of who you used to be must die, and they must die on a cross with Christ. Who you used to be must die. It has to go. But that's not all. Thirdly, in denying yourself and taking up your cross, Jesus says, you must follow me. We've already been saying following Christ means, according to 1 John 2, 6, that we are abiding in Him and walking in the same manner as He walked. What does it mean, beloved? It means that you're learning from Christ, that you're studying His Word and all the doctrine that pours out of His Word, that you learn of Christ, that you begin to think like Christ, that you begin to speak like Christ, love like Christ, act like Christ, and let me ask you, is that increasing in your life as a Christian? Are you studying and learning of Him? Do you know Him? Not just mentally, I understand the facts around my salvation. Do you know Him intimately? Do you think like He does? Do you think His thoughts after Him? Do you talk like Jesus? Or is your tongue used in the way that it used to be used before Christ? Do you love like Him, sacrificially, selflessly? Do you bear each other's burdens and love them even when they don't deserve love? That's the way that Jesus loves us. Do you love like that? Do you act like Him? Do you do the things that Jesus does? In the spirit of John the Baptist, we must decrease that He might increase. But the concern is this, and and here's where the human element comes back in if I do this if I die to myself I'll lose everything and this is how the the person thinks I'll lose my friends I'll lose my hobbies I'll lose my girlfriend my boyfriend I'll lose my money I'll lose my habits my fun my time my identity I will lose everything and when faced with the concept of losing everything that makes you who are you, the natural man reacts by trying to reverse that and then hold on to everything he has. They tighten their grip. They squeeze a little, a little closer. I don't want to lose all that. I like my hobbies. I like my relationship. I like my time regardless of whether or not all these things were honoring to the Lord at all. But this is not the way of Christ, beloved. Verse 25, Jesus says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, verses 25 and 26, they elaborate on the notion of self-denial from verse 24. So all these verses are connected. They work together. And so what does denying yourself entail? Well, it has everything to do with losing your life. Now, it doesn't mean that a person is to take their own life. We're not talking about suicide. That's self-murder. That's wrong. That's a sin. And so if you're ever in the point in your life when you hear a voice in your head that says, go ahead and take your life, that's Satan. God never calls you to end your life. That's Satan. Okay, so reject that voice. Don't listen to that voice. But the Lord instead is saying something else. The Greek word here that's rendered life is psyche. It has to do with your inner life, your soul. It's who you are inside. The way that you think, the way that you feel. Your impulses, your emotions, everything that makes you who you are on the inside. That's your life. And so the epitome of selfishness is of a person who will do anything and everything for the sake of preserving and furthering self. I want to live for me. It's all about me. And no one actually even says that. They don't verbalize that. I've heard very few people in this world that have actually said, My life is all about me. You watch TV shows and commercials, and they say that a lot, but Christians don't usually admit to that. However, I think that a lot of times we think that. We feel that way. We believe that we can, in our own efforts, save our, our, our souls and save our life or we'll say things like this in our in our minds and our consciousness we'll say well lord i'll give you i'll give you everything i have just leave me a little bit L- let me have this one or two things and I, I, if, if you just give me this i'll give you everything else god doesn't work that way it's all or nothing for the lord when he says lose your life it's all It's all, beloved. And Jesus says, if you make your life about self-preservation and the furtherance of me, you won't save your life. He says quite the opposite. You do that, you'll lose it. You will lose that life. The more you strive to keep it, the, the closer you hold, the tighter you squeeze, the more you will lose. But He says, Whoever loses his life, and now mark this very carefully, whoever loses his life for my sake. He doesn't just say lose for the sake of losing. This is not asceticism. It's not just mere self-denial, going and marooning yourself on a desert island with nothing but a a hammock and some water and saying, I'm going to punish myself eternally and that will do something. That's not what he's talking about. It's not pure self-denial because, again, that is inward. That's to make me feel like I'm denying myself. He says, if you lose your life for my sake, do all things for me, he says, you'll find it. You will find your life if you lose it for me. That's the key. It's the cause of Christ. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, even. I just want to read this passage to you. Philippians 3, just listen, he says, whatever things were gained to me, it's almost like he makes two columns and stacks them up, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Same idea. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish so that I might gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness that comes from myself of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul says, I've looked at my entire life. I've taken stock of everything. I've sat down with a big yellow pad and I've written down everything that comprises who I am. And I've ripped out those sheets and I've thrown them in the fire and then I take another piece of paper and I say, Christ is all. And then I say, that's my life. And he says, I've counted all things to be lost in the comparison of knowing Christ. And Paul says, the more that you know Christ, all of a sudden your life begins to fill again. And now the the view that you take is that now everything is abundant in Christ. My love grows. My sense of worth actually grows because I'm found in Him. My purpose is intensified. My selfishness begins to die. My sinfulness begins to wither. My mental focus gets sharper. My prayer life gets better. My friendships get sweeter. My enemies become more numerous. But I have comfort in Christ. My future is secure. My work, it changes now. I do it with a different attitude. My money doesn't really mean anything anymore. I'm not worried about it. My health belongs to Him. My satisfaction belongs to Him. Paul understood that when he hangs on to his old life, he's going to lose it all. But he says, if I count it all as loss, I will find Christ. And I'll be found in Him. And he says, that's better. That is so much more sweet. And beloved, the promise I can make to you from the Word of God is if you seek after Christ, if you thirst for righteousness, if you hunger after the Lord... First of all, you'll never be satisfied in a way that it is always that you hunger for more of Him. See, sin never satisfies. Sin promises to deliver, but what happens as soon as you commit the sin that you're desiring to commit? Do you feel better? You feel worse, don't you? Because sin never satisfies. It promises. It's the hook. There's the bait on the hook. But as soon as you swallow the bait, you're You're sunk. But you seek after Christ, and no longer do you feel this this sinking, terrible, awful feeling. Now you actually want more. Lord, I want to know you more. I want more of my life to be filled with you. The Bible promises taste and see that the Lord is good. And so we are meant to, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. The Lord continues in verse 26 For what will it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul, or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Building again on this theme of self-denial, what is the value, the use, the profit if you gain everything? Think about what everything actually means. If you were to gain all the wealth you could possibly have, status, pleasure, accomplishments, world travel, you go to every single country in the whole world, freedoms expensive toys a thousand friends statues made in your honor you could gain the whole world and guess what it won't be enough well how do we know experientially well because look at any any person in human history that has gained all of these things they do not die happy most of them die tragically hating themselves and hating others the richest people in the world are never satisfied. The most well-traveled, the person who has acclaim, fame, fortune, at all. I mean, they're all depressed and miserable without Christ. The whole world. What will happen if you gain the whole world? And what good is it if it costs you your own soul? What is the point if you lose your own life in the end? Remember back to Matthew 4, 8. What did Satan promise Jesus? Remember this? He promised Him all the kingdoms of the world will bow down and worship you. You'll have it all. But what's the hitch? That's the bait on the hook. What's the hook? Well, Satan says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you bow down and worship Me. All Jesus had to do was commit one little sin and offer worship to Satan and he would have it all. And that's the allure, isn't it? That's what sin promises. Sin promises the world. But sin only brings death. To what end again? Elsewhere, Matthew 5.29, Jesus said, if your right eye, think about this, if your right eye causes you to stumble, He says, tear it out and throw it from you. Metaphorically, by the way just in the case of all you literalists who are contemplating what it means to do that. Jesus says if, you, if your right eye causes you to stumble, take it out, throw it from you, it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. It is better to lose a 100 years of self-gratification in this life and then suffer an eternity in hell. Think about the ratio. 100 years of trying to get everything I can possibly get Load up on life. What is the point if you spend the next million years in hell? What is the point? There is no value. There is no point in that. And then somebody will always invariably say this. Well, why can't I have both? Why can't I have eternity with God and have a a great life here? My best life now. Can I have that? Well, except here's the problem. The problem is sin. The problem is the the fact that our sin separates us from God and damns us. And we need salvation in Christ. And so the person who says, I want to live my life the way I want to live it, and then I guess when I'm done, I guess I'll move on and be happy somewhere else. And again, I'm talking about the context of doing this apart from Christ. God does bless His people once in a while. There are notable believers who have lived a very good life on earth and have received the kingdom. Of course, none of that comes without pain. Look at David. Look at Solomon. Look at Job. God has blessed these kinds of people, but yet He does still discipline them. And the question really comes down to, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? A person who thinks they can live their life and their good enough life is going to be good enough for the future. According to Psalm 49, 7, nothing, nothing can redeem your soul. I'll just be a good person here in this life, and that'll carry me into eternity. But the Bible says no man, Psalm 49, no man by any means can redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly. There is no way for you to live a good enough life here and now and earn eternity for yourself. It is impossible. It is impossible. Because even one sin, and we say small sin, meager sin, it is a great offense to God. It is a great offense to God. Every sin that we call small, God calls treason. And so to try to live your life for yourself, apart from Christ, is an exercise in absolute futility and will only lead to ruin. And judgment is coming. Verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and then will repay every man according to his deeds. Up to this point, Jesus had only told them very hard truth. He's talking about self-denial and loss and death. Those are hard truths. That's, That's a painful thing to hear your Lord say to you after just rebuking you, rebuking you sharply, that's a hard pill to swallow. Again, verse 23, Jesus is rebuking Peter for being self-willed. then he tells him that to sacrifice everything and submit to following him, but then in the light of that, on the heels of that, he makes this prophetic promise here. He says again, "For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels." This is the first time in the New Testament where Jesus talks about his own coming glory. And Lord willing, I'm actually going to open up and unpack the glory of Christ beginning next week. Because Matthew 17 brings us into this, uh, this uh, re- revelation of God's glory, the Christ's glory on earth. So I'm going to spend, again, Lord willing, a few weeks talking about the glory of Christ, and I'm excited about it. I hope you are too. But just as just a little bit of a hint of it here. This is the first time he mentions it. It's not going to be the last... We get a preview, like I said in the next chapter, but Jesus here promises that the Son of Man, which is the Messianic title that he uses for himself, the Son of Man is going to come. Now he tells the disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem and die. He just said that a few minutes ago. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed. But now he's speaking about his glorious return. He says, I'm going to come back. Well, Which return is he talking about? Is he talking about his resurrection? Well, no, we already know that that's being talked about. That's already coming soon. That's not the glory, the coming in glory he's referring to. He's talking about his second coming at the end of the age. The prophet Isaiah speaks of this future day according to Isaiah 2.19 when men will go into caves of the rocks and holes into the ground in terror of the Lord before the splendor of His majesty when He arises to make the earth tremble. It's a very vivid picture of sinful men hiding in fear of the revelation of the glory of God and yet Him coming down in majesty and in splendor and revealing Himself to all people. Or Isaiah 40, verse 5, When the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together, there's coming a day when every single person on planet earth will see the glory of God displayed for them. Or Isaiah 60, verse 2, when the Lord will rise upon you and His glory will appear upon you and the nations will come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. So the Bible predicts that all the nations, all the kings, all those who are sitting in their own self-glory will look to Christ and say, My glory is nothing. And they will behold the glory of the majestic Lord. Jesus later predicts in Matthew twenty-four thirty the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all peoples will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So Jesus is talking not about His suffering and humiliation and death and not even about His resurrection a few days later. He's talking about this transcendent, resplendent glory that is to be revealed in the future. Christ comes, He says, in the glory of of his father the glory of his father this demonstrates even textually the unity between christ and the father the first person of the trinity and the second person of the trinity where they share a glory together In fact, later in John 17, Jesus prays, Father, glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You. Then He says a few breaths later, glorify Me together with Yourself, Father, with the glory which I had with You before the world was. So Jesus talks a lot about this glory of the Father, which is the glory of the Son, which He shares again with the Father. Again, there are two distinct members of the Trinity And each possess their own full glory, yet their glory together, which is a mystery, is the same glory. This is a shared glory. The glory that identifies the Son with the Father. Again, this is a tremendous statement. That the Son would come in the glory of the Father. Remarkable. Remarkable. And so the son describes a time when he will come in the full glory of God and he says he's going to come with his angels. There's going to be a whole army, a whole array of glorious angels coming in the train of his wake. This is a marvelous, miraculous, awe-inspiring scene. And we will get to this when we get to Matthew 24 and 25. We're going to slow down and really look at what that scene is going to be. It's remarkable. I don't think we oftentimes think about the second coming as often as we should. Sometimes we do it too much and do it the wrong way, but I think if we do it the right way and focus on what is true about the coming of Christ, it is remarkable. And it lifts our spirits. It gives us hope. And so we will do that, and we will do that some next week as well. But what is the purpose of all this? Why does He come in His glory? To judge and then to rule he continues, he will then repay every man according to his deeds. This appears to be a quote from Psalm sixty-two, twelve, but it refers ultimately to the judgment that has been given to the Son. And we read about that in John five, twenty-two, that the Father gives all judgment to the Son. The Son has the right to judge the nations. And so when Christ returns, and He will, He will judge all the nations. He will judge every single person. Now those who have died to their old selves and been born again in Christ, their sinful deeds will be swallowed up in the sacrifice of the cross and their righteous deeds will be rewarded. For you who belong to Christ, who are walking in Him, who have been reborn in Him, who have faith in Him, your sinful deeds have already been paid for. It's not a future reality. It's a present one. It's a past one. Your sin has been paid for. Now, do we continue in sin that grace might increase? Well, no. We died to sin, so we should not live in it any longer. So we hate our sin. We strive not to do it. We put our sinful deeds to death. But we can only do that because they have already been killed by Christ. So that is the future of the believer. But for those who have not found life in Christ, for those who have rejected the gospel, for those who are relying on their own deeds to save them, The Bible says they will lose their soul. They will lose. Any person who is caught on the last day not following Christ will be judged because they will prove that they do not belong to Christ and have no part with Him. Verse 28, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, if verse 27 gave them cause to fear, and even reading that verse gives me a little bit of trepidation, verse 28 gives them cause to be excited. He says, for truly I say to you, that's a repeated phrase that's meant to express the gravity of what He's about to say. Whenever Jesus says, truly I say to you, He's saying, pay attention to this. What I'm telling you is truth. Wake up and listen. So truly I say to you, then he addresses the disciples, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death, taste death, that's a Hebraism meaning they're not going to die until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, pause button here for just a second. This verse has caused no small amount of debate what does it mean? Well, let's start with the easiest part of it. Let's start with the most simple part of this verse. Jesus is addressing the disciples that are standing in front of him. Okay? This is about 30 A.D. at this point. He goes to the cross six or so months later. So these are disciples in 30 A.D. in Palestine who were standing in front of Jesus. And he's talking to them. And he's assuring them that they will witness a spectacular event sometime in their lifetime before they die. And what is that event? He says, it is the beholding of the Son of Man coming into His kingdom. Now, this opens up a larger discussion of end times and the coming of the kingdom of God. And again, we'll get to that when we get to chapter 24. We'll spend a lot more time talking about what that coming of the kingdom really means. But for our purposes today, many scholars have seen this as a proof text that the kingdom of God has already come during the time of the apostles in their own lifetime. That in 30 AD, the disciples that were standing there in front of Jesus would see in their lifetime the full coming of the kingdom of God. Again, some scholars believe that that is what that means. And they would say that because all of them died by the end of the first century, and Jesus promised they would see it before they died, ergo, the kingdom has already fully come within the first century. But frankly, my friends, that's a bit flimsy to me, and to many, by the way, Only because many of the prophecies that are related to the coming of Christ are not fulfilled in the first century. And many are still to be fulfilled. Instead, many scholars have seen that this verse is really more of a summary statement that could could be applied to several coming realities. There's a lot bound up in this statement. For example, the coming of the glory of Christ is certainly seen at His bodily resurrection. And all the disciples saw that with the exception of one who died. Judas but all the other disciples they see Jesus resurrected that's that's essentially in this way the spiritual kingdom is arriving on earth for those who are being saved so the coming of the kingdom of God begins at the resurrection of Christ because now life has come our sins have been killed on the cross and now life has come in the resurrection that's one element of it Of course, it also might include the glory of Christ arriving on earth in the ministry of the Spirit of God at Pentecost, the birth of the church. In that way, the glory of Christ has come. The kingdom of God has come because the church is born. Nearly all the disciples, they were present there to witness all this. They saw the arrival of the Spirit at Pentecost. They saw the birth of the church. They were part of the advancement of the mission of the gospel going into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the world to bring forth the kingdom of God, they saw that glory. Beloved, you and I, part of this church, we've seen the glory of Christ manifested even in this church. Not only as saints are gathered together as one assembly, but I've seen many people even sitting here who've come to Christ in the last 10 years. And I praise God for that. And for those of you who become Christians in the last 10 years here, the glory of God is being displayed through saving lost people. We get to see that. It's remarkable. And so in this way, they saw the coming and advancement of Christ's glory displayed right before their own eyes. But there's more to understand this. Some scholars have even noted this, that the Greek word here for kingdom, which is basileia, can be translated also royal majesty or regal splendor. And if that's what this is translated or supposed to be translated as, and the promise is as such. There are some of you who will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in His royal majesty and regal splendor. If that is to be the translation, if that is the intention Then we know that that gets fulfilled six days later at the Mount of Transfiguration. However, if that's not what he is specifically claiming, there's no doubt that the events of the Transfiguration in the very next chapter of Matthew 17 are meant to be a preview of what is to come when the Son of Man comes in full glory. They saw just a a few moments of the, the glory of Christ displayed for them visibly. And they will, and we will, by faith and by sight in the future, see the full magnitude of that glory transcendent forever. And so, if that's the sense, then they are about to see the glory of Christ a week from that point. And we'll get to that next time. But knowing that Christ is coming again, knowing that this is all true, coming at an hour that you don't expect, the question for us to consider is this. How will you respond? What will you do knowing that Christ is coming? Will you live for Him? Now I know just by experience that there are many of you who live your lives in the pursuit of the glory of God. I've known so many of you who have denied yourselves and preferred others over yourself. And many of you who do things for the glory of God and serve this church selflessly, and serve your family selflessly, and serve the Lord selflessly. And I praise God for that. However, when you're faced with that question, will you deny yourself? Will you take up your cross? Will you follow Him? Will you do it? Are you doing it? Now, there's always a measure of Well, I am on some level, but I want to be doing that more. Well, praise the Lord. So continue to walk in Him, as Colossians says. Beloved, continue. Let me spur you on. Continue to deny yourself, to to take up your cross and die to your old self, and continue to follow Him. Continue to come up after Him. Run hard after that prize. Don't stop. Don't stop. And you might be sitting here thinking, yeah, but I've made a train wreck of things so far. Repent now. Tell the Lord, Lord, I've done this in my own strength. I'm wrong. Repent now. Find forgiveness in Christ now and then walk now. Don't even start till tomorrow or New Year's resolution. Forget that. Do it now. Honor Christ today with your life. Will you lose your life for Christ's sake? Will you count all as loss and find Christ? And some of you might have to make very difficult decisions. That might mean that you break off a relationship with someone you're not married to because you're not pursuing it righteously. That might mean that you might have to leave your job that is a stumbling block to you and causing you to sin. That might mean you have to kill some idols. It might mean you have to give up some hobbies. It might mean you have to stop watching some TV shows. It might mean a lot of things for you. I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. You and the Lord. But ask Him and ask yourself a very honest question. Lord, is there anything standing in the way of following after You? Lord, show me how to deny myself. Show me how to die to my flesh. And show me what it means to follow You in obedience. And whatever He convicts you of, whatever the Scriptures tell you, whatever the Lord is impressing on you in terms of spiritual conviction, again, provided it aligns with Scripture. Don't ever do that apart from Scripture, by the way. Align your your desires, align your impressions with the Word of God. But whatever He convicts you to do, follow Him. Follow Him. Because here's the promise. If you chase after your own desires and you grab onto your own life to save it, you'll lose it. But if you lose this life for the cause of Christ, I promise you, on behalf of the Word and authority of God, you will find it. You'll find life in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to You for Your loving kindness and provision. Uh, Lord, the Christian life for us is difficult. It's through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God, the Bible says. And so, Lord, we don't come at this lightly. We don't come at this willy-nilly and just thinking this is nothing. This is heavy at the same time. This is burdensome because our sin is so burdensome. But, Lord Jesus, You promise us in Matthew 11 to come to You, to follow after You, And you tell us that you'll make our burdens light. You'll give us your yoke, which is easy for us. That we'll lose the life of sin. We'll lose the life of self. And we follow after you, and your burden is easy. Your yoke is light. And you tell us that we will find rest for our souls. When we submit ourselves to you, we can take a deep sigh of relief that my life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. My only responsibility is to glorify You in every aspect of my life. Lord, that You would own all that I have. And Lord, this is such a high calling for us. And for many, this comes at a high cost. But Lord, I pray that each of us would count the cost. And it would not seem frivolous to us. It won't seem like a waste. But rather, that we'll respond the way Paul does. And say, I've looked at my whole life and I count everything as loss because You are so great and so worthy of my praise. God, would You work in us and convict us to follow hard after You. Lord, we love You, and we want our love for You to grow. Help us, Lord, O God. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.